0: You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, this is Lisa Birnbach. Do you know that this is the 150th week of my experimental podcast that was only supposed to be a trial balloon for a few months? Oh, yes, it is. Our outro says every Friday, if she remembers, because that was the kind of informal vibe that got me here in the first place. I knew radio. I didn't know podcasting. I never, never thought that I would feel so compelled to produce a podcast, an optimistic one, for almost three years. I never skipped a week. Even if I couldn't book a guest or someone dropped out, I was still here with my blog and my five things. I felt it was a calling, in a way, to come up with the damn list. I mean, the world was hurting, the disease, the politics, the divisiveness. The country seemed poised for another civil war, and I came up with five things. Five little, measly things. It doesn't seem like much at first. Some weeks it was incredibly easy. Some weeks it was a grind. Seriously, a grind. But the short list was a vehicle, you could say, for my own mental health, and it really helped me. And then I heard it helped others. That's all I need to know and then I'm on my way. Now, an interview podcast isn't a revolutionary idea, though when I decided to listen to Joe Rogan's very popular bro-ish podcast, I knew immediately that I was a better interviewer. For one thing, it's not about me, it's about my guests. And I knew that I cared more about my guests and also prepared more for my guests than he did. I didn't want a platform to show off my wealth or my souvenirs or my manliness. I mean, come on, you all know about my manliness anyway. This program was about the guests, and it was also about us knitting together a dialogue about surviving through a difficult time. Those four years were dark. I don't need to remind you. We didn't know who we could trust or if our government was poised for good or for ill. And yes, we all know it was for ill. In 2017, we civilians could not have seen this pandemic on the horizon, but the rot that set in was mind-blowing and very visible. By 2018, for me, it was either this podcast or hiding under my comforter. So to the microphone, I went. And little by little, we grew, garnering interesting and well-known guests who would be prized on any platform, let alone this humble podcast. Then the lockdown, as we know, helped podcasts because all the guests who were deprived TV time and book tours and so on were very available in their makeshift studios to talk to me. And many of my guests, of course, went on to develop successful podcasts. I like to feel that they were inspired by their little time with us. Now, there were so many cool ideas and interesting things that I learned and that we talked about on the program over the three years, including downsizing one's life to be more humane, including applying the FBI's code to one's own business or life, including learning that the wealth and culture gaps that exist in this country were actually fomented unwittingly, of course, by liberal journalists. We talked about gravity. We talked about cooking cooking when you're angry we talked about fashion we talked about reinventing our lives we talked about the obsolescence of men and so many other things now all the shows still exist in our archives and will be in our archives forever i guess and you can find them on my website which is lisabernbach.com yes i named that myself so this is the end of that chapter but of course it's also the beginning of a new one I hope to take you all with me wherever I happen to land. And meanwhile, you can always find me on Twitter, Instagram, and at my website. But for now, here are my five things that make life better. And actually, it's five, but they're really numbers 746 to 750 if you're counting. And I was counting. Number one, the people in team involved with the Five Things podcast. They kept me on it when my confidence was flagging. They told me it was important and maybe it was. Number two, the fans of the Five Things. In addition to Ellen Angel Shulk, the founder of the Five Things That Make Life Better Facebook fan page, <gasps> mouthful, there are others of you who've let me know how much you've enjoyed this portable entertainment or comfort. I do hope I'm not letting you down. Number three, my guests. Quite an impressive list, if you ask me. I don't want to brag, so please consult the pod and blog tab on my website to see our VIP list. Number four, customer service phone numbers that get you directly to a human being. I know I sound my age or my mother's age, but I trust a stranger more than I trust voicemails and prompts. I don't mean to go all Zappos on you. I mean, I don't want a conversation that lasts three hours about sneakers and DHL or FedEx or whatever, but a real human voice, even if you know the call is routed through another continent to someone who is not remotely named Kevin, no matter what he says, provides at least the illusion that your issue will be addressed or even God willing solved. Number five, cherries. It's that time of the year, and the first cherries are the best because we had to wait for them, because we couldn't conjure them up in the winter, and because that tiny red pellet is such a vibrant burst of flavor. And now it's time for the last interview. My guest is Abigail Tucker, a science writer who's just written a book called Mom Genes Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. Babies don't just mess up your body, they mess up your brain too. We'll be right back with Abigail Tucker. Abigail Tucker's new book is called Mom Genes, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. I find it fascinating, and I'm so happy that she's with us today. Abigail, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so
1: much. I'm so glad to be here.
0: I know you came to this book naturally as a very successful breeder of your own brood. (laughs) But what actually drew you to a somewhat academic study of motherhood and what goes on in our brains and
1: placentas? Yes, so I had in ordinary life, um, non-professional life, observed this very startling change that occurred in myself and a lot of my friends when we became moms over the last five to ten years, I'd say, for most of us. And during that time, I had just for another magazine story, I'm a science writer, visited a lab where a scientist who studies bowls mentioned to me that there was this interesting change that you can see occur in the brains of these lab animals and that they think that this maternal transformation is key to a lot of different kinds of human phenomenon. And I just thought that was fascinating because I guess I had been under the impression that maybe I just hadn't gotten enough sleep for a couple of years. And that's why I felt slightly different than before. And maybe my friends were grouchy because they had forgotten where they'd put their car keys or whatever. I didn't realize that this was something that scientists were actively studying. And so I then, after researching the rodent literature, found that there's all these interesting labs that study human mom's brains too. And so I just had to know more.
0: The thing very early on that struck me in your book was, A, what you just said, that it's a study that's an important study because it always feels like women are not the subject of studies that are considered important. And secondly, that the placenta is where a lot of amazing magical stuff of differentiation and attachment happens. That was a big shock to me. Was that surprising to you?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I hadn't thought too much about the placenta. But I happen to live not too far from this really neat scientist named Harvey Kleiman, who studies the placenta. And so I was actually since I've only had C sections for all of my four children, I would never even seen a placenta. So I went to his lab, and he showed me a placenta. And we talked a little bit about how it works. And he told me and kind of walked me through how it's actually this incredibly invasive organ. It's sort of a short lived appendage of the fetus that invades a mother's body and remodels her blood vessels. And in the placenta, the dad's genes are actually sort of unusually... active, I guess is one way to say it. They're kind of pushing for this takeover of the mom's body. And there's other kind of fascinating stuff that happens in the course of this invasion. Some of the fetal cells are actually able to cross over into the mom's body where they live forever. And right. And your blood and your... And so becoming, you've been
0: colonized. Yeah. A mother's brain or her DNA changed or just her... her
1: probably DNA, everything. It's that in this case, this fetal microchimerism... So your child cells are coming into your body and they are becoming part of your tissue. So in certain cases, scientists have looked at a, a woman's liver and they'll find that part of it has been rebuilt by cells that have Y chromosomes in them. So male cells, cells belonging to a woman's son in some cases, a son that they didn't know that they had, even if the son didn't survive, if there's a miscarriage or an abortion, the baby can still live on in your body. And I just thought that was, you know, this that would this, explain yeah. the
0: extra weight I've still been carrying. Since right? My... Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean She's 24. <laughs> but whatever. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So if your child or your unborn child or your husband has cells that have gone into your placenta and then moved into your bloodstream, your heart, your liver, your kidneys, what does that mean? What does that mean? Is the woman's body, a mother's body meant to absorb these other entities or is that an accident?
1: Well, that's a subject of debate. So these cells with fetal DNA are in your body and they embed and differentiate into different parts. And some scientists think that there could be a protective effect that the fetus has on the mother. Like I went to a lab where they study heart disease and they give mice moms artificial heart attacks basically in the lab. And their theory is that these fetal cells are homing into the inflammation that they sense in the mother's heart and helping to heal that heart as a way to sort of protect this very important, this person who's going to be very important to the survival of that fetus. There's also slightly more menacing theories that show that it's possible that these fetal cells are embedding in your breast in order to stimulate extra milk production as this very sort of Machiavellian way of feeding the fetus. Um, Mm -hmm. But these cells do seem protective against certain kinds of disease. And so I thought that was kind of neat.
0: It is neat. It also makes motherhood seem less like a one-way street of all giving and not getting, right? (laughs) There's something very sweet about that, that your child left behind some important cells or matter to help you to protect you because you protect them. I was also quite surprised that so many mammal mothers are less caring for their babies than human mothers. The thing about rabbits was very interesting to me. You know, to me, this is like all the science I never took in high school or college. (laughs) But the fact that the mommy bunny is pulling out her own hair to make a nest for her babies is very, you know, that's a mother that needs to be thanked. But some of them don't nurse. Some of them leave their kids immediately. Some nurse them once. I mean, it is interesting that all mammals don't have the same instinct to mothering or that the instinct is just different from species to species.
1: Yeah. So humans have a lot more leeway, I'd say, to perform all kinds of different behaviors. There's not a lot of what scientists call fixed action patterns in human mothering. So There aren't things that we always do or have to do. Like you're saying this thing with rabbits and pulling out the hair on their chest to make their nest. This is like a huge part of their mothering. And if you stop them from doing this, somehow it gums up the works and they're just not able to kind of carry on humans have some kind of nesting instinct that labs have kind of looked into, but it's not as strong or specific. We can get by in a lot of different conditions and there's not set things. Human mother maternal behaviors vary across the world. And one interesting thing that you bring up is that the duration of our mothering is a lot different than say the average mammals. A lot of mammals, mothering and lactation are kind of almost the same thing. It's like if nursing Mm -hmm. stops, then they or move on more or less cut, yeah. yeah, and it's time for the yeah. new the new baby. But from human mothers, it's different, and we and only there's a few kinds of small whales that also have a more of a grandmothering type thing in a, in a menopausal phase of life that leads to sort of helping out with your kids, your your grandkids or grand whales, I guess, as the case may be. And so I think that that's really neat too. Other mammals we share so much in common with them, but we're also super different.
0: Well, let's talk about that idea of motherhood never really ending in humans, the adjustments that our brains make when we become mothers-to-be. And I always felt that the 10 months of pregnancy, and let's not kid anybody, it's 40 weeks. From the math I know, that would suggest it's 10 months. The 10 months that we're pregnant prepare us, those of us who are lucky enough to carry our babies to term, prepares us emotionally in ways we're not even aware of. I mean, I went from being a woman who thought of babies as those loud things on airplanes to being a freakishly devoted mother. <laughs> and that happened, I'm sure, before the babies were born. And it happens within, whether it's my invasive placenta or just any mother's feeling as the baby grows inside you. When you feel the baby kick, it suddenly takes you to a new emotional place. But then after the baby is out of our body and growing and doing, Does our brain ever go back to the super ambitious workaholic that we were? I mean, I know women who did turn back into that, but there's always that piece of you that's still a mom, no matter how busy you
1: are, no matter how important you are, whether your kids live with you or not, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and that's kind of when I think of what the maternal instinct is, I think that it is the birth of a new drive or motive for being kind of. And I don't think that ever really goes back. Scientists uh, who study this stuff basically just think of it as a phase of development. So you're kind of going forward. And when humans develop, they don't necessarily regress or go all the way back under normal circumstances. So scientists have taken scans of women's brains before they got pregnant and then during pregnancy, and then after pregnancy, and they note these changes in brain structure that they know last for two years. And I kind of thought, Oh, two years, you know, that's not that long, we can all handle that and, and snap back. But that's not exactly the story. The story is that that's the last time they checked. <laughs> so they really think that these changes are long-lasting <laughs> and permanent. And um, well, you had four kids, exactly. so the two years, and then another two years, and yes. another two years, and yes, yes, and so and, and, on. Yeah. And there's this idea that these changes are cumulative too. So like a first time mother who's going through the changes of pregnancy. And I think there's an argument that the brain is actually the most important organ of childbirth, because what good is having a baby if you don't have the drive to take care of it. But these changes kind of happen and you can see them happening in rats too. It's like if you have a rat who's not had children or children, pups, they react differently to pups than a rat who is a mother. And that difference is enduring forever, basically. A rat who has hasn't had pups yet will run away from pups somewhat wisely. Or or, eat them, you said, or they'll eat them. them. That's the the, the darker side of this. But the rat who's experienced um, the maternal transformation will choose pups over food. She'll choose pups over cocaine. She'll risk pain. She'll cross an electric grid to get to pups. And it's just like a night and day difference in this one regard, you know, how you react to babies, whether or not the rats could go back to their ambitious careers as journalists. I don't know. But what's interesting about these reductive animal models is that they really just kind of show this flip switch that happens. And people don't necessarily, they don't go back from that, I don't think. Yeah, you
0: don't lose your maternal instinct once you have a maternal instinct.
1: Yeah it's it's
0: a development i like the way you put it as an extra drive that you have it's almost like you bifurcate yourself the way you do when you have a second kid and you think oh i can't love a second kid enough because i have this first kid i love but the love grows and the heart the figurative heart expands.
1: Exactly. And you know, that's actually what I was thinking of before. One thing that scientists see as evidence for the permanence of this change is that new mothers go through this startling change for their first child, but their second child, it's like they've already been changed. So it's not as dramatic. And it's not such a surreal experience when you're in the hospital with your second kid or your fourth kid. And that's because you've already as one scientist told me that your ticket has already been punched. At the same time, as (laughs) you say, the the second child is, it's not to say that mothering every child is the same. One thing I became fascinated by was the different behaviors that a given child can draw out of its mother, whether the child is a girl or a boy or active or not active, you know, this is a yes. to us.
0: Well, right. Um, your kids are still little.
1: What's the age range for you? The biggest one is 10 years old, and the littlest one turned one last week. So she was a pandemic baby.
0: Oh, wow. We got a pandemic puppy. And and (laughs) it's not quite the same, but a little bit the same. Well, Abigail, what's so interesting, of course, is that you see your kids grow up in the same house, but have my kids are in their 20s. And the oldest exhibit, I call them my science exhibits, my (laughs) experiments, Exhibit A is 31 and he has totally different I mean they they got what they got but they all turned out differently and they you know were raised in the same house it just <laughs> doesn't always they they don't all turn out the same now of course it depends on where we were when one was born or the other or what was going on in the world but my goodness it's just so interesting to me that kids can be so different. And, you know, you do talk about nature versus nurture in the book, and you do talk about twins. I find twins very fascinating.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) And a little (laughs) scary. And a little scary. It's a lot of work.
0: (laughs) It's a lot of work. The feeding of twins is a lot of work, and the managing of two at once is a lot. But also, I guess I'm curious about what with all the research that scientists around the world are doing on human mother's brains, are there pharmaceutical implications? I mean, a lot of people suffer more and more, or maybe it's just the stigma of avoiding the subject of postpartum depression. That certainly seems to be a more prevalent situation than it used to be in my breeding days I'm just wondering, where will science take us with the knowledge thats that you've reported on in your book, Mom Genes?
1: Well, some people even think that there's a case for making this kind of brain imaging a part of obstetricians' visits and care, that we should be thinking of the mother's brain as being as important as her blood pressure, her um, aspects of her physical health. And some of these experiments that I write about, you know, the end goal is to find pharmaceutical solutions to postpartum depression, which is, I think, generationally on the rise. However, the thing that really struck me in reading all this was how important the environment that we make for mothers really is in terms of the way that they proceed through this transformation. And what's exciting about that is that we as people can exercise a lot of control over the environment and do things to make mothers feel supported and cared for in ways that will enrich their mental health and protect this period of transformation and development that they go through. So there's sort of public policy things that we can do to stave off some forms of postpartum depression. You know, there's a lot that we don't know about it. There's a lot of genetic links and things like that. But there are strong suggestions that things like stress and lack of good social networks can really damage women during this vulnerable period. And there are things that we can do and borrow pages from other countries' playbooks to make sure that the women in America, or at least the women in our own lives, are at least a little bit protected from some of these things. So I thought that was exciting, the fact that there's ways that we can use science to improve mothers' lives.
0: First of all, your writing style is very jaunty, perky, and fun. (laughs) And so you make science very palatable and and clear to us non-scientists. But also the fact is that Women need those supports. Women need to be able to nurse their child when they're out and about with their child. I mean, one of the greatest things is that you don't need to heat a bottle and have all that apparatus when you're a nursing mom. But socially, it's not a protected thing to do in many places in this country. I think the idea of having brain studies during pregnancy is fantastic.
1: Yeah, I Ultimately, it's a happy science, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I would volunteer too. <laughs> I yeah, would. It's fun. And you know, I think the idea too, is that they can use the sort of cutting edge tools of brain scans and EEG readings where they see like how sharply your brain is responding to different stimuli, especially infant pictures and, and infant cries. They can use this kind of science, maybe not necessarily to test every single woman who delivers a baby, but they can use it to see if there's physical effects of other kinds of intervention that people do like talk therapy, or there's ideas that if you give women access to baby nurses, who especially the most vulnerable women, if they aren't coming home from the hospital all by themselves in this super stressful situation, if they were to have somebody there in the trenches with them, you know, that might help them a lot. And yeah, that's an expensive undertaking. But if we could use these diagnostic imaging tests to show that honestly, these social adjustments that we're making are having a quantifiable impact on people's brains. And I think that that's just a huge testament to the way that we really can influence each other. And so I thought that was really exciting, too. But know that I actually really encourage people, especially if you're in a place like New York, to sign up for some of these experiments, because that's one of the hardest things. It's really hard to recruit moms to do these very safe experiments, because moms are busy.
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, Abigail, you were not only busy with four children and writing a big book, but you came up with your list of five things that make your life better. (laughs) And I I appreciate that. And I know when you're in the thick of it for kids under the age of 10, you don't have a lot of time for yourself. So (laughs) I really, I don't need an FMRI to know that, but your list is great. And if you would go through it with us, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. Okay. Your number one thing that makes your life better. So I actually don't have the list in front of me. Oh, okay. Number one was Escape to the Chateau.
1: Oh, yes. Um, so this is one of my HGTV 9.30 p.m. delights. It's a reality show about this wacky British couple that realizes that instead of buying a two-bedroom apartment in London, they could buy a decrepit Forty-five room chateau in rural France <laughs> and fix it up. And I have to say that I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I know, right? And they have two toddlers, and that's kind of what is the real sinker for me because I have so much trouble kind of wading through the day to day of domestic life and home ownership. And at the end of a day, if your dishwasher broke, it's nice to sit down and see these people who have such enthusiasm for this hopeless project of restoring the ancient chateau, <laughs> and they're not—they don't lose. Their enthusiasm if they discover a a bat colony in the attic, or if they have to figure out what species of carp is living around the chateau's moat, or if they need to make extra money by raising fancy truffles in their garden. I just really admire them and I live through them, but I'm also glad not to be them.
0: Who wouldn't want a decrepit (laughs) chateau? Number two, I'd never heard of this. You have to tell me what it is exactly. It's sea buckthorn. Did I say it right? Yeah. Sea buckthorn.
1: So I have to say that, you know, moms know that while people are always encouraging us to go to the spa or whatever, we don't actually get there that often. And so Sea Buckthorn is a product gifted to me by my still childless 30 year old sister in law, (laughs) who um, knows a lot about healthy beauty products. And it's an extract, I thought it was a seaweed, but I now think it's a shrub that you put on your skin. And it has this beautiful kind of golden glowing orange color and it smells great and i think that it kind of has a restorative effect on the skin but more than that it's just sort of like an extra excuse to stay in the shower for like three more minutes, you know, which is like the safe place for moms. It's just another activity. I'm not a beauty products expert. I've worn the same perfume since I was like 15. So for me to try something new and stick with it means that it's a good product. Now,
0: is this something you put on your skin when you're wet or yes. dry?
1: Yes, wet, and I should probably read the instructions again, but it's something that you know you you put on wet skin and you leave on for a second and then you rinse off like an alternative to a cleanser. Um, but it's really gentle and people who have skin sensitivities, I think it's good for them as well. And it really smells great. I think there's an aromatherapy aspect to it that is lovely. Excellent. Thank you for that tip. Number three is tough girl fitness. Tough girl fitness. So this is My Addiction. It's a local gym in Connecticut, but the great news is that they have this new online platform called Altera Fitness, where you can sign into these classes from wherever you are. And the leader of the gym is named Krista Doran. She is this wonderful women's fitness advocate. She is incredibly strong in mind and spirit. And the way that she approaches fitness is not a punishing method she encourages us to get stronger and increase ourselves in all kinds of ways. And, you know, I'm a writer, so I sit at my desk all day, but it's a way to become embodied again and to take out some aggression. We do a lot of slamming and pushing and pulling. I've never lifted weights before, but I really like it. And it's about kind of celebrating the body instead of, you know, I'm a 40 year old mom, I'm not in a place where I'm going to be like whittling myself down into a a nub here. It's about saying, well, we've all done these amazing things. So many of us are moms, and let's try to enhance our bodies and celebrate them as we move forward into the next phase. And I just find it very liberating.
0: Fantastic. Number four is the Global Baby Series. Tell me about that.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, these are these very sweet picture book series. And by picture book, I mean, they're actually photographs of babies from all around the world. And across four children, these are the first books that my babies have all gravitated to. There's something about just these pictures of baby smiling little babies. Yeah, it just turns them on. And what is neat too, is that it's an opportunity for them to see babies that, you know, all babies have a similar look. They've got these baby releasers as scientists call them, but it's also... A way to to see how babies across the world look similar but also different they live you know they're carried on their mother's backs their mom might be wearing gloves made of reindeer it's just a really lovely look at the diversity of human experience and then also kind of the the commonalities of maternal experience and oh, nice. i just and there's and this we've discovered there's global baby girls and boys and there's also american babies so oh. i love them all
0: oh wonderful And number five is hot vanilla.
1: Yes. So this probably sounds completely immature, like I'm having a a bottle of warm milk at night like babies do. And I guess that's kind of what I do. I find that, you know, one of the difficult things of being a mother to young children and especially babies is that your sleep is not just limited, but it's really unpredictable. And that makes it hard for me to go to sleep sometimes. And so I do this kind of time-honored technique of having some warm milk while I watch Escape to the Chateau. Ideally, after I've just had my shower and doused myself in <laughs> some thorn, what I do is I add some vanilla extract and a little uh-huh. bit of sugar to the milk. And it just makes it more seem like I've gone to some kind of lovely bistro or cafe to have a refreshment rather than just kind of like chugging a glass of milk to make myself fall asleep more <laughs> easily. Right. But well, um, you really know what?
0: Nice. What I like about your list and your approach is you have to grab some times and some treats for yourself. You exactly. just have to. <laughs> Otherwise, you're depleted. The bank of mommy is empty and you get cross with your kids for no reason. I'm only saying this because I, you know, I, I always <laughs> called myself a student mother. I was always trying to figure it out. And that's why I call my children my exhibits. And I, I did not, I, I probably didn't do enough of that, quite honestly, for myself. But I think that's really sound advice and sound practice. Oop. So thank you for that, Abigail. And we should check in when your exhibits are in their 20s and see how it went. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Well, I shouldn't say how it went, how it goes. (laughs) Yes, because parenting doesn't really ever end. Oh, gosh. In humans. No, in a beautiful way. So now it's time for me to say you've been listening to five things that make life better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Abigail Tucker, author of Mom Jeans, Inside the New Science of Our Ancient Maternal Instinct. It's published by Gallery Books, a division of Simon & Schuster. This podcast was produced in New York City by TheFieldTV.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spresa Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until we meet again, please get your vaccines and act natural. Bye-bye. You've been listening to 5 Things That Make Life Better
1: with Lisa Birnbach. This is Sam Haft. And it's been a pleasure to be here with you each week. Until next time, take care. And as Lisa says, act natural. Bye-bye.